You may be seated, beloved. Well, if you have a copy of God's Word available to you, I invite you to turn to Luke chapter 8 this evening. The Gospel of Luke chapter 8. And we come to the end of this chapter this evening, and we'll endeavor to see it through to the end, the Lord giving us help and grace as we consider His Word. With Christmas and so on thrown into the middle, and uh, it's taken some time to get through this chapter, but reading over it again, it has been an encouragement to me this past week just how filled it is with truth to encourage our hearts, and I trust I'll try to communicate some of that afresh this evening as we give consideration to it. But we're going to read again from verse 41 and just take in this last section as it tells us of Jairus and his interaction with the Lord, and then the woman with the issue of blood that we considered last Lord's Day, and then our particular attention will be turned to verses 49 through the end. And may the Lord help us even as we read His infallible Word. Let us hear the Word of the Lord. Luke chapter 8, verse 41. And behold, there came a man named Jairus, and he was a ruler of the synagogue. And he fell down at Jesus' feet and besought him that he would come into his house. For he had one only daughter, about twelve years of age, and she lay dying. But as he went, the people thronged him. And a woman, having an issue of blood twelve years, which had spent all her living upon physicians, neither could be healed of any, came behind him and touched the border of his garment, and immediately her issue of blood stanched. And Jesus said, Who touched me? When all denied, Peter and they that were with him said, Master, the multitude throng thee and press thee. Sayest thou, Who touched me? And Jesus said, Somebody hath touched me, for I perceive that virtue is gone out of me. And when the woman saw that she was not hid, she came trembling, and falling down before him, she declared unto him before all the people for what cause she had touched him, and how she was healed immediately. And he said unto her, Daughter, be of good comfort. Thy faith hath made thee whole. Go in peace. Why do yet speak? There cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. And when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John, and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her. But he said, Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. And he put them all out, and took her by the hand, and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished. But he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Amen. May the Lord give the necessary light that we need. In His Word, may He enrich our hearts from His truth tonight. Let's pray again. Let's seek for that help that we need from the Lord, all of us. We're always in need of help. Every Christian needs help. We don't assume that by our mere reason we can understand these things. We need the help of the Spirit. And if you're not a Christian, you can pray for yourself that God would open your eyes and have mercy upon you. Lord, we do pray that Thou wilt graciously give us eyes to see Marvelous things are recorded in thy word. They beg our belief. If we would try to place ourselves right there, we could hardly comprehend what was going on in those days. Indeed, this one day that we have been considering across the verses of this chapter have, have caused us to be humbled and amazed over and over and over again. There is none like Jesus, and all oh, that we would see it, all oh, that we would know it, all oh, that it would be manifest in our lives that 
that this perishing world that is around us would take knowledge of us that we have been with Jesus. What a difference there is when Christ takes a hold of a heart and life. God, we pray tonight that if there be any without the Son of God, unsaved, without eternal life, that this night they would have ears to hear and eyes to see, and they would seek Him in a wonderful expression of faith that is given by God in a work that can only be attributed to God, that they would lay hold on eternal life this night. Hear prayer, give help to the preacher and to the listener, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Few sections of the New Testament present to us such an encompassing and impressive display of the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you take the time to go back and read from the beginning of this chapter, you will see what I mean. We have seen that in a storm, there is no danger that Jesus cannot control. We have seen that on the shore, there is no demon that he cannot cast out. We have seen that in the crowd, there is no disease that he can't heal. And tonight we shall see in Jairus' home that there is no death that he cannot conquer. We've also seen various responses to Jesus through this chapter. We have noted that the disciples sought Jesus to help them in verse 24. Legion sought to accompany him in verse 38. His countrymen, rather, begged to get rid of him, verse 37. The multitude on the shore welcomed him, verse 40. And Jairus besought him to return to his house. These are all differing responses, and some of them very similar, but these are the responses that we see to the Lord Jesus Christ through this chapter. Indeed, even more than just responding to Jesus, we've seen His authority as people come to Him and show their subordination to Him as they display it in the physicality of their approach, in the posture in which they come to Him. So we've witnessed the demon-possessed fall down before Jesus, verse 28. We've witnessed the desperate in Jairus fall down before Jesus, verse 41. And we've witnessed the delivered woman, the woman with the issue of blood, fall down before Jesus in verse 47. They're all falling down before Him. And these things, again, are not details to be missed or skirted over. These are showing the uniformity. They're indicating that this is the right response. It's at least educating us to give consideration that this is how men should respond to the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you get those occasions where men are repelling Christ, like the crowd that was inhabiting the other side of the Sea of Galilee, then we're appalled that these people would have no time for Jesus when everyone's crowding around Him and so desirous for His help. But as already mentioned, having faced danger, demons, disease, now our Savior faces death. And this is what Jesus is about. He came to exercise His authority over all the things that cause fear in our hearts. And we have all been in positions and experiences, had experiences where we felt danger. And no doubt we may still come to have similar Experiencing, feeling, sensing danger, Jesus is the answer in such a scenario. The same when we have demonic activity, when there's Satan coming after us. Who do we need to help us as we face Satan? We need the Lord. We need the Lord to come alongside us. We need His strength and help. When we're desperate, when we're facing the impossible again, we must come to Jesus, even when we are sick and diseased. We come to Him for healing, healing that will extend beyond the limitations of time, even into eternity, with the full healing of the soul, never to perish. What distinguishes Jesus from all others at the head of the world's religions is that He was a man, not a myth. And living in our world, just as you and we do, just as all of us here are living, breathing in this world, He lived in this world, but He proved His power over these things unlike any other. And He indicated that He would finally end them all when He died and rose again from the dead. These things are going to be put away. There will come a time where there's never again any danger, that we will not experience danger. There's never any sense of something looming that would cause there to be fear in our hearts. That day will come when there's no more danger. There will come the day when there's no more confrontation with demons. 
Never again will we face the enemy as we may face him and experience him in this life. There will come a time where there's no more disease. All disease is taken away, gone forever, set aside when we are healed fully, risen in these bodies of ours, perfected like unto his glorious body. And there will come a day, as we have been singing about as well, where death itself will find its end, when it will no longer have any power over us, and we can enter into it even in this life, knowing that we fear no evil, because Christ is victor over death. Jesus came, according to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 15, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage, and to word it in a perhaps more simple fashion for some of you, it was to set free those who were held in slavery all their lives by their fear of death. He came to set free, listen, to set free those who were held in slavery all of their lives by a fear of death. It comes to eradicate that. Luke has already recorded his power over death in the previous chapter, Luke chapter 7, verses 12 through 15. And I believe there were many more, many more occasions where Jesus caused the dead to be raised to life. But I find it fascinating that in both of these accounts, Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 8, and also the other account we're given in John chapter 11 when Lazarus is raised from the dead, that there's, there's someone there to advocate for the dead. Someone there of concern, someone there who has a burden, people around them, people who love them, people that no doubt are offering prayers, people who were crying out that God would have mercy upon them. I was thinking about that, that 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 in itself indicates to us what is needed in this world as men face death, as they enter into eternity without Christ, the one thing they need outside of Jesus Christ, of course, the one thing they need is for someone to advocate for them, someone to be offering prayers for them, someone to be seeking God that they would be saved and delivered from the power of death. And even more than that, the consequences of their sin. And this is part of the reason why we're still here, beloved. It's part of the reason why you haven't just been taken up to be with the Lord after He saved you, that you're here in this world, in part to engage in a, an intercessory role of praying for those who are still held under the power of death and its fear, those who are still without Christ, those that are still on the way to hell. Your job, your responsibility, in part, is to pray for them. Just as Jairus does on this occasion, as he comes desperately begging the Lord Jesus to have mercy upon his daughter who is at the point of death, this is your job to see men and women, boys and girls at the point of death and pray for them. Pray for them. So the people in your neighborhood and the people that you work with and the people in your school, in your class, the people perhaps that rub you up the wrong way sometimes, the people that are around you that don't know the Lord, your responsibility is to pray for them. And this is a great task, a blessed position to be in, to be those praying for souls rather than those that need to be prayed for. Christian, have you given up praying and interceding for those that you care about? Are you growing weary in the labor and the privilege of praying? If we could just get a little bit of what Jairus felt, that that pressing desperation that we read of here in verse 41. My daughter, in your case, maybe your son, your mother, your father, friend, sibling, they're at the point of death. The Lord will ensure that your prayers are not in vain. God uses means. Those he raises from the dead are usually those that are prayed for. As we've seen here, Jairus is the one interceding on behalf of his 12-year-old daughter. 
And I want us tonight then to, to give consideration to these verses before us, verses 49 through to the end, where we're, we hone in on the event as Jesus makes his way with Jairus to his home and finds himself there. It's too late, of course, and his daughter's already dead and all that unfolds there. I, I want us to consider it under the title, The Voice of the Master, The Voice of the Master. And I say that for a reason. The AV uses master a number of times in this chapter, verse 24, verse 45. In those instances, it's a word that's only used by Luke and found just seven times in the New Testament. And the sense is that one of being a superintendent. But in this instance that we're using it tonight, when the man comes in verse 49 and says, thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. It's a different word. And I want us to consider it in this role, the instructor, the one who counsels, the one who stands as, as, as prophet of the Lord, master over men, speaking, and in his speaking making such a difference in the experiences of men. So note with me, first of all, a voice of counsel, a voice of counsel. And note here as we look at verses 49 and going down through this passage, that his counsel is constant. His counsel is constant. Verse 49 begins, while he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying to him, while he yet spake, these words indicate the uninterrupted ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't get a break. Jairus has begged him, come with me, and Jesus begins to move toward Jairus's home. We have no idea how far that is, no idea the distance, how long it's going to take, but in the process of moving in that direction, the woman with the issue of blood comes, begs, well, she doesn't come begging, she comes and lays hold of him and then has to explain the fact that she had laid on to him and laid hold of him in an act of faith, virtue going out of Jesus Christ, healing her of her disease of 12 years and all of that then unfolds. We don't know again how long all of that takes. But Luke indicates this, this uninterrupted ministry of Christ when he says, while he yet spake, while he's ministering to her, while he's saying, daughter, be of good comfort, thy faith hath made thee whole, go in peace. As he's saying language of comfort and encouragement to her, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house saying, someone comes interrupting Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. And what I want us to see then is that the counsel of Christ is constant. He has this devotion, this commitment to always turn to counsel people in their need. This is an indication of the ongoing mediation of Jesus Christ. Even in his life, you can see it here, because whenever this man comes in the midst of the Lord speaking to the woman... While he yet spake, he comes and speaks to Jairus, thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. Jesus heard it. When Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying. So he turns to these two men, looking particularly at Jairus, and he has a word for him. So he's constantly moving and counseling. Constantly there's this woman who needs a word, then Jairus needs a word, and you see just a snapshot here of the Lord continually ministering, counseling to souls. It never stopped. This was his life. This was his, his experience all through his ministry. Always, always in need. Souls surrounding him, always laying hold of him, always needing a word in season. We're given hardly anything of it in the Gospels. We're given sufficient. But we're not given anywhere near all the words, all the actions, all the responses of the Son of God in the three years or so ministry that he had here upon earth. There is one mediator between God and men. One mediator who is always listening. Yes, even as he's talking to the lady, talking to the woman with the issue of blood, comforting her, as he's comforting her, he can hear the words. He can hear, thy daughter is dead. Trouble not the master. He can hear it. And as he gives his ministry of comfort to the lady, he immediately then turns to Jairus to comfort her. This is our Lord Jesus Christ, beloved. This is the one who's always listening and always there to counsel. We know it. Even what's prophesied of him in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, his name shall be called Counselor, or some argue Wonderful counselor put together. He is a counselor. He is the one who comes to the hearts of men, always there. 
He has this designation by the Father, the status of being royal advisor. It is an indication of him as prophet of God. This unique role of, of ministering to hearts and constantly capable of seeing the needs of the multitude and giving the particular word that they need. Now, the question that arises from this, Christian, the question that arises is, do I seek him for counsel? Am I open to his counsel? Am I interested in his counsel? Because he will always counsel those who seek for his counsel. I'm talking just today, someone making decisions of life and I've learned to, to wait and be a bit more patient in making decisions, and that's a good thing to learn. Never rush in where you don't have to rush. Don't be hasty where it's unnecessary. Learn to be patient. And part of the patience and the waiting is, is giving time to truly grasp what you're being counseled from the Lord. You see, the hasty man doesn't believe he needs counsel from the Lord. The hasty man thinks he always has it all figured out. He thinks he can see clearly. He thinks he can see all particular dangers. He's like, he's like Elimelech. He's like Elimelech in the sense that there's a famine. Instead of praying about the matter to see how to respond to the famine, he just rationalizes there's a famine. I need to take the family to Moab. And it results in the despair of the family. Whereas I imagine... Boaz, though we're not told, Boaz was praying, seeking God. The land had been given to him. He's not going to go to Moab or any other land that God hadn't given. So if God's appointed a famine in the land that he has given, he is also going to see us through the period of famine and provide for all of our needs. And so by the time that Ruth and Naomi make their way back, Boaz is prospering, flourishing. God has taken care of him, even amidst the famine that drove Elimelech to Moab. Look, look, look to the Lord, Christian. Look to the Lord. Always seek counsel. He is a voice of counsel. He, as, as busy as the Lord is, counseling all his people across the nations. You can see here just a wonderful snapshot. While he yet spake, while he's ministering to one, he turns to minister to another. His counsel is constant. Also, his counsel is urgent. It is urgent. While he yet spake, there cometh one from the ruler of the synagogue's house, saying to him, Thy daughter is dead, trouble not the master. But when Jesus heard it, he answered him, saying, Fear not, believe only, and she shall be made whole, or she shall be saved. To what degree the interaction with the woman delayed our Lord, we can't be sure. But as he is interacting with her, the word comes from Jairus' home, that his daughter is dead. We don't know who this person is. No idea. We're not told. It doesn't matter. I doubt that he's angry, really, with what's happened. He probably doesn't know to what degree all things have transpired. I don't even think Jairus is angry with the Lord, having been held up by this woman. There was a sense of inevitability, even in the language, that his daughter is at the point of death. He knows she's at the point of death. This is, this is just this last ditch that possibly the Lord can do something for them. But the inevitable news has come. And Jairus certainly believed that Christ could save her at the point of death. The question is, would he believe that Christ could save her once already in the arms of death? Well, we're not told exactly what goes on in his heart. I'm quite sure that his heart sunk. Thy daughter is dead. Those are words you do not want to hear. You just try, parents, and put yourselves there. Thy daughter is dead. Jesus always discerning, always discerning. Even, even amidst the interaction with the woman, even with all of that going on, and, and there's a crowd, there's a crowd around, there's all the busyness. But even with all of that, bustle that's going on. He discerns the news that has been reported, and he comes immediately to speak a word. This is what the Lord does. He sees the urgency of our condition. 
He's always aware of the news that we receive. The things that are winging their way to you in the form of bad news, he's already aware that it's on the way. And again, going back to the, what we were saying just a moment ago about his counsel, this is what makes seeking for the counsel of the Lord so necessary. There have been times, there have been many times, in my own experience, perhaps in yours as well, when as news is coming, as you've read the Word of God that day, the answer has already been given. The Word of promise has already been presented. It comes back to the mind, back to the heart, settling the soul, calming the spirit. He knows that news is coming. He knows it's coming. He knows the power of that news to discourage your heart. And this is why you don't give up reading the Word, Christian. This is why you don't set aside your Bible and just set it there and pick it up on a Sunday to bring it with you to church if you even do that. Most, well, many don't even do that these days. They just pick up their phone, carry it with them. Pick up the Word. This is the counsel. You have no idea what news is coming your way at any given moment. Things you have no idea are, are, are just hurtling towards you. And you need the counsel of the Lord. You need the mind of the Lord. You need the promises of the Lord. You need the assurances that God gives in His Word to His people. And before Jairus broke down, before Jairus hit the ground in despair, before Jairus ran off, Ran off because it's all over. Jesus can't do anything to help. He's busy, trouble not the master. If he takes that counsel, if he takes that counsel, he doesn't interrupt Jesus as he, as he ministers to the woman and he scampers off home to console his wife. But the Lord always knows. He knows the word. He knows how to counsel the heart. And there's always urgencies. There are always matters of urgency that we need, things that He needs to address in our lives. And so He says, just the perfect word for Him, fear not, fear not. Consider it. Get it into your heart. Thy daughter is dead. Fear not. Fear not. It's like, it's like his, the little faith that He had is like sand going through his fingers, and the last of it's about to disappear. And the Lord just grabs a hold of his hands and keeps it there, keeps what remains. It's like it's slipping away, drifting. All hope is lost. It's about to be lost. And just as the words begin to penetrate and the faith begins to diminish, the Lord just puts his arms around him with a word from him, fear not. Don't be fearing. Believe only. This is, this is what he does. This is his voice of counsel. In the counsel of the Lord, he attacks fear and he bolsters faith. He's always doing that. He attacks fear, he bolsters faith. He's running after you constantly with a word. And all the events of life that will cause you to tremble, he comes in with a word. Fear not. Believe only, and she shall be made whole. A word to salvage whatever faith remained in his heart. Then the Lord doesn't need great faith to work. He doesn't need people to have this massive quantity of unshakable faith and it's only then he decides he's going to manifest his great power and his glory. He actually loves to see the trembling heart who, who's just trying to just believe to the best of their ability just by grace hanging in there and still hoping, hoping. And then he comes. Keeps that faith constant, keeps it steady,
at least keeps it alive. Fear not. Think of all the things that you have faced that have brought fear to your heart, losing your job, changing your circumstances in all sorts of ways. And you're, you're dealing with things like, how are we going to pay the bills? Or how are we going to do this and that? And you, you can't, the math doesn't work out. <laughs> well, in the scenario when you're told your daughter is dead, there is no math to figure out. There's no reason to hope at all except the promise of the Lord. Fear not. Maybe that's a word for someone here tonight. Fear not. Believe only. Fear not. Believe only. I'm not asking you to do something wonderful. I'm not asking you to do some great extraordinary act. I just want you don't be shaken by fear. Just believe. Not also the voice of control, not only the voice of counsel, but the voice of control. Reading on from verse 51. And when he came into the house, he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her, but he said, Weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. So they continued to make their way to the house. Again, we don't know how long it took, how far it was, but it was long enough for professional mourners to arrive on the scene before they were there. So she has died. The messenger is sent to tell Jairus, however far that is, to get him then for Jairus and the Lord and the others to make their way back to the house. In that time, the professional mourners are there and going through their, their mourning customs and the flutes playing and all the rest of it. We're told about this specifically in Matthew chapter 9 when he tells us in verses 23 and 24, when Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the minstrels and the people making a noise, he said unto them, Give place, for the maid is not dead but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. So these minstrels, these people making a noise, these are, the, these are the professional mourners. This was part of their custom. It seems odd to you and me. We wouldn't have anything like that today. In fact, usually when someone dies, we have silence. We have quiet. We don't talk a whole lot. We, we pass on our sympathies to those that are bereaved and we quietly move around. But not so in other cultures. So amidst all this lament, of course, preparing for the burial, the Jews didn't embalm. The climate is warm, hot. They're going to bury her quickly. But the Lord has another plan. In fact, He takes control of the situation. This is the thing, the voice of control. Christ is in total control. And I want you to see it in a couple of ways particularly. First, he controls who sees his works. He controls who sees his works. Mark reveals that he only allows Peter and James and John to follow Jairus and him to the house. So it's not like the disciples are even outside the house. They were, they were told at the point when the man came to tell the news that thy daughter is dead. At that point, Jesus says, basically, you all stay here, the crowd and everyone else, Jairus, the messenger, Peter, James, and John, and the Lord Jesus make their way to the house. And that's it. So he takes control of the whole scenario, taking control particularly of those who will see his work. Mark 5, verse 37 says, He suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James, and he cometh to the house. So that all happens before he gets to the house. He then meets the funeral tumult at the house, and Matthew says, When the people were put forth, he went in. So he gets them out of the house, and then he goes in. And when you bring it all together, basically what the Lord is, He's, he's controlling the environment. He's in controlling the environment of, in terms of who's going to see what He is about to do. 
He has determined that only a select number will see his work. He lets in just five others into the house. So you have seven in total, including the daughter who's dead. You have the three disciples, the Lord Jesus, the father and mother, and the maiden who's lying there in the room. And this is the first time, of course, that Jairus has seen his daughter dead. So you try to put yourself there and imagine the the sorrow that's in his heart, as well as comforting his wife, putting his arm around her, trying to console her. I don't know if I see him there sobbing by the bedside over her corpse or whether his arms are around his wife trying to console her amidst her sobs. But that's the kind of scene that you have here as Jesus puts out the mourners, brings in the three, and begins to prepare himself for this miracle that we have recorded here. But he controls who sees his works. That's, that's the point. He's not wanting certain people to see. This is the first time that he actually separates Peter and James and John onto himself so that they, they only get to see something that he's about to do, and he will do this on other occasions as well. But, but it's a wonderful illustration about how the Lord is in control of the things that he sees, that, that even in his works, he, he himself is in control of who actually sees what it is that he does. Believers at times can see the handiwork of God. They can see the moving of the Lord, the, the mysterious activity of the Spirit. They can, they can discern all of this while the world watches on and they can't see any of it. It doesn't make any sense to them. They are blinded. They are blinkered. They are unable to see the work of God, the activity of Christ. Even in times of difficulty and trial, there are some, even some believers, they look at it and they're in misery because they can't see the hand of God. But there's one believer there, they can trace the hand of God in all the details and they're resting. No, God's in this. God's in this. God's using this. He's working in some way. When I discern it, I have had times when someone is seeking counsel, they're concerned about what to do, and they, they come and they ask for advice, as people should do, not just to me, but to others who they trust and may have wisdom. And, and I, I say to them, you know, you're not sure what to do, so, so tell me why you're doing it in the first place. Give me an idea. Give me some background. And they detail the background and why it is they have an interest in going this way and the various details that have brought them to this particular point, but now they're just at a juncture of uncertainty and they don't know what to do. And sometimes, sometimes I've observed that the very clear indication that, that, that God is in this. I had one man tell me about his burden in terms of ministry and detailing that, that he believed this is what God wanted him to do. But what it was going to take to get him there, to get him on that field and in that work was, was, was a pipe dream. It seemed impossible. But I told him, as he said to me, I, I, think, I think this is what the Lord would have me do and, and to do it now or in the near future. I said, so tell me, tell me, tell me how the Lord has been working. Tell me what has happened. Tell me what has brought you to this point. And there were so many providential indications. At the, by the time he was done, I said to him, you're going. I know you're going. The Lord has clearly been in this. And sure enough, amidst the insurmountable, and I mean, and I can't give details because I give away too much, but the insurmountable task that he was facing in terms of trying to get where he believed God would have him, it seemed impossible. But God made it come to pass. It was clear. It was clear to me that God had been working. But it's being able to see it. It's being able to discern that the Lord is working. And sometimes... Those who do not have discernment, those that do not walk close with the Lord, aren't in step with the Lord, they don't see the Lord. Days pass, weeks pass, months pass, they never see the Lord. They never see the Lord. They never are able to come home and say, I saw the Lord work today, or the Lord is really working in this issue, or God is beginning to answer prayer in this matter, I can see His hand working. They're never able to report that. They have nothing to say. They're not, they're not in fellowship with God. But the Lord delights to bring a few in. He, he does. He, he brings a few in to show them things. And sometimes it's just a few. He brings them in. And let me say to you, young person, desire, long, covet to be in the inner circle with the Lord. Covet to be in such close proximity with Christ that you're in there, close to Him, as close as is humanly possible. Don't covet to be as close to the world and just about 
You're like one of those toddlers, one of those, those ropes, <laughs> whatever they call them, that they attach their children to to stop them running too far away. And the child runs off and needs that to keep them in. But you don't want to be that kind of a Christian trying to get yourself as far away and the Lord has you just as far and just holding on to you. Otherwise, you'd scamper off completely. You want to be running in the direction of the Lord, close to Him. I don't know if you have some of those, those uh, competitions with dogs and they train the dogs. Crufts is the famous one over in England. And, and it always amazes me over the years and you would watch these, these dogs and the way they were trained and, and they would walk, the, the, the owner the, would be able to walk anywhere at any speed and the dog not just walking beside, the, the head is pressed against the leg. And it doesn't matter what direction they turn, the head is pressed against the leg and they just follow and they move and they, and they will not move. They're right there. And that, that, beloved, that's the way to walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. It is right as close to Him as you can be. And He'll show you things. He'll show you things. He'll show you what He's doing. He'll show you what He's doing in your life. He'll show you what He's doing perhaps in other matters that relate to affairs that you are involved with. He'll touch your heart, give you eyes to see. So He... He controls. He is controlling here. He controls who sees his works. Also, he controls how we should think about events. He controls how we should think about events. So, reading again from verse 51 for context, he came into the house. He he suffered no man to go in, save Peter and James and John and the father and the mother of the maiden. And all wept and bewailed her, but he said, weep not. She is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. What's he saying in verse 42? He is controlling how they should think about the event. Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. Of course, he's not saying that she's not dead in the sense that he's, he's saying that she's in a condition other than what everyone else observes. But he is using euphemistically the fact that, that people who die don't die to forever be Uh, in that condition of death that as we find repeatedly in Scripture, even in the Old Testament as well as in the New, that people, they they fall asleep. It's a euphemism for for death. When they pass away, they fall asleep. And he is using that. But but the, the importance of that language of falling asleep gives the indication that there will be a resurrection, there will be an awakening. That's what the Lord's communicating. He is giving them insight. Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. In other words, she's going to wake up out of this. Our Lord always has a word for the events. And He's always willing to teach us how to respond, how to deal with the experiences of life. He has a word for us. This is is something we should always seek to cultivate. That when we're dealing with people facing their troubles and their trials that if we are friends with them, if we are sending a card to them, that, that we think thoughtfully about, what's the word? What's the word I could give to them? What's, what's a passage that would, that would be appropriate? And this is what we try to do for one another, isn't it? We, 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 try, to counsel, we try to counsel each other's hearts when... When someone's in despair or there's been a death or something else has happened. So we put in a text. I hope not thoughtlessly. I don't think we would be doing that. We would be thinking about what's the appropriate word. This is what the Lord does. He is controlling how we should think about events. Now, of course, often we are like these paid mourners. (laughs) Rather than listening to the Lord, we show our foolishness and unbelief. They laughed him to scorn, knowing that she was dead. You know, that's that's man right there, isn't it? Doesn't that illustrate the, the cold, indifferent, unbelieving, proud, obstinate heart of man right there? Everyone's talking about Jesus. The impossible 
has been made possible. It's the reason why Jairus took off to find him in the first place. But these numbskulls, showing even the trite and shallow nature of their own hearts, in one sense they're mourning and lamenting and then turn around laughing him to scorn in the next breath. This is man. Be careful, especially when man's in a crowd, be careful about men in a crowd who think they're wiser than God. If you've ever worked in a place of employment surrounded by unbelievers, I think I've given this advice before. I give it again. Working in a factory, working in some other environment, surrounded by unbelievers, be careful about saying things, challenging something they've said or dealing with something spiritual or religious when there's a crowd because they're always big and brave when they're in a crowd. Time your words when you're alone. People are very different when you're speaking one-to-one. The guy who laughs and mocks Almighty God in the crowd all of a sudden can be very sober when you talk to him as an individual. Be careful what crowd you're in. Young person, be careful what crowd you're in. You could find yourself in a crowd. They're there to minister in one sense, though they're getting paid for it. But they're there to accompany the the sorrow. They're there to participate in the lamentation of the family, the legitimate mourning of all that are connected to Jairus. They're there to service that, to do that. This is part of their, their job, their ministry. And maybe some joined in who who weren't interested in being paid. I don't know all the cultural differences of that time. But be careful about the crowd. Be careful about being influenced by those who will mock the Lord. In fact, as I was reading this, I was thinking about the two malefactors on the cross. I'm thinking about how they railed on the Lord. Blaspheme, that is. And so they're, they're throwing charges against the Lord Jesus Christ from the cross. But something, something begins to twig in one of them. And all of a sudden, it begins to discern there's something different about this man who's between us. And as the other continues to rail and blaspheme against the Lord Jesus Christ, then he turns and he says, shouting across the Lord and to the other side, he said, Dost thou not fear God? If you don't fear of God at all, you're taking this too far. And I can see there's something different about this man. Do you not see it? Are you so blind? You can't see that he's different than us. Well, these mourners couldn't see the difference in the Lord. But the Lord had a word for them. If only they had listened. Weep not, she is not dead, but sleepeth. She sleeps. And this indicates, as I've already said, this indicates what's coming. There's coming a day of resurrection. There is. There's coming a day when we will see right across the world what we're giving a little glimpse into here in this passage. That where death all of a sudden has no power against the voice of the Master. He says himself in John 5, 28, marvel not at this. For the hour is coming in the which that all that are in the graves shall hear his voice and shall come forth they that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. That is future reality. There will be a resurrection. There will be a coming forth from the graves. Why do they come forth? Why do they come forth? Why is there this response of corpses, the dust of men in the ground. Why do they come forth? They hear the Master's voice. He speaks. And the bodies come out of the grave. I don't have time to dwell too much on that day. But I do wonder, I do wonder if when we think about and preach and 
tell you that there's coming a day of resurrection when Jesus will call men from their graves. I wonder if you respond with appropriate sobriety or if you're like these mourners you laugh at the resurrection you laugh at the language of God and his word you laugh at to scorn because you know they're dead all those bodies in Woodlong Cemetery they're all dead they're going nowhere and all the bodies buried across the ages, all the bodies lost at sea, all the bodies that have perished in the deserts, all those bodies, they're, they're just, they're nowhere to be found. They will never be collected. They're just out there, gone, back into the earth, eaten by the animals. And you mock it. You mock the idea that these, these, these graves will open, these bodies will rise. Be careful what crowd you're in. Because while they're outside the house, because he drove them out, while they're outside the house, laughing, talking among themselves, did you hear what he said? Did you hear what he said? Who is this guy? Where did Jairus get this guy? She's dead. Has he never seen a corpse before? We're, we're, we're these, these funeral mourners. They've, they've seen corpse after corpse after corpse they, they, all the time. All the time they see the dead. Now clearly he doesn't know what he's talking about. They're out there laughing while the Son of God raises her to life. And there'll come a day when those who mocked will be compelled to arise out of their graves and acknowledge the kingship of Jesus Christ. Well, you're going to live on forever. You will. I hope you don't mock it like these. The Lord is, the Lord is endeavoring even tonight to, to control how you should think about events. He is, he is controlling your, your mind and your heart by His Word. He is, he is guiding you into a, an appropriate response. Thirdly, finally, a voice of creation. A voice of creation. Reading on, verse 54. And he put them all out and took her by the hand and called, saying, Maid, arise. And her spirit came again, and she arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. And her parents were astonished, but he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. Voice of creation. Note first, the words that create. What are the words that create? We're told, Maid, arise. Called, saying, Maid, arise. Mark gives the Aramaic spoken by Jesus. Mark chapter 5, verse 41. Talitha Kumai, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. These are tender words. In fact, these words could have just as easily been spoken every morning by Jairus or by his wife as they called on their daughter to wake up. Time to wake up. Maid, arise. Talitha Kumai. And so, she had slept there perhaps in that same room. Every day of her life for 12 years, she's lying there sleeping, and every morning, one of the parents would come in and say, Talitha Kumai, made her eyes. It's time to get up. And she would get up. And Jesus comes in tenderly with the very same words, the familiar words to her. Talitha Kumai, made her eyes. And she gets up. This is the power of the Lord, the creative power of the Lord. This is what you find in Genesis chapter 1. This is in the beginning where we have all things being brought into existence by the spoken word of the Son of God. There was nothing, and then there was everything. Why? How? He spoke it into existence. It wasn't there. It was, if you like, dead, worse than dead, beyond dead. There was nothing there. Let there be light. And there was light. 
And then he pulled everything together and organized the entire universe all by a spoken word. Every single molecule in this universe controlled by the word of the Son of God. It's beyond comprehension. You can't even begin to get your head around it. Every molecule, all the electrons and neutrons and all the... You think of all the moving parts of this world. You think of it all. And he is governing it by his word. It came out of nothing. And here, with one command, he dispelled death by the impartation of life. Verse 54 says, he called called, saying, me it arise. This is an illustration of the irresistible call of God to the sinner by the Spirit through the ministry of the Word. This is what our catechism refers to as effectual calling. This is an important doctrine. In fact, when you find others doing catechisms often, they just skip over this doctrine. There's a recent catechism put out by Tim Keller, and I remember some people starting to talk about, oh, this is a great little catechism, it's really good, and I took a glean through it, and there's, there's no effectual calling in it. Well, it doesn't mean to say what's in it's wrong, but I'm thinking to myself, well, I'd rather my children knew what effectual calling is. So I'll just set aside the new and bring in the old. Stick with the old shorter catechism. Effectual calling. The larger catechism says, effectual calling is the work of God's almighty power and grace, whereby out of his free and special love to his elect, and from nothing in them, moving him thereunto. That is, they haven't done anything to earn it. He does, in his accepted time, invite and draw them to Jesus Christ by his word and spirit, savingly enlightening their minds, renewing and powerfully determining their wills, so as they, although in themselves dead in sin, are hereby made willing and able freely to answer his call and to accept and embrace the grace offered and conveyed therein. Now, there's a lot in that, but that is honey to the soul. This, this is it. He illustrated right here. You have a damsel who's dead. She's dead. She can't hear. She can't speak. She can't respond. She doesn't know what's going on. And the Lord calls, made her eyes. And she gets up like it was any other morning. And this is what happens for us who are saved. That's what happened. It was, it was any other day any other day, and perhaps some of you sat under the Word for years and heard the gospel hundreds of times, and you heard the call, and the preacher like me is appealing to you, repent and believe. Seek the Lord while He may be found. Turn from your sins. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you heard it all, and you just, it just washed over you, and then, then all of a sudden, you're sitting in the same place, in the same spot, hearing the same preacher saying what appears to be the same words, but all of a sudden, men arise, and you hear a call. Your mind is open. Your eyes see Christ. And you run to him. You think, why, why, why did I delay? Why did I not see it before? It was like any other day, and yet it was not like any other day. For as once you were blind, now you see. And Christ becomes exceeding precious to you. This, this is the work of God. This is what he does. This is how he functions. This is the glory, and I must be very quick. The words that create and also the evidence of creation. What's the evidence of creation? Her spirit came again. And she arose straightway. No delay. No delay. The Lord has worked. She arose straightway, and he commanded to give her meat. Again, making sure perhaps that everyone's aware that this is not an apparition. This is the same girl. It's not some holographic trickery going on here. This is, this is the same maid who was dead. She was actually dead. And she's now sitting there and she's eating, functioning normally, just as she always had before. This is what the Lord does. And of course, there's, there's, there's hysteria. You, you, can, you can only begin to imagine. Verse 56, her parents were astonished. They're, they're utterly shocked. They're blown away. They can't begin to understand what's going on. Jairus and his wife are, are sobbing tears of joy and embracing themselves and embracing their daughter and smothering her with love. And, and they're just the joy that entered into this home. And amidst all the muttering outside, all the muttering outside, going on, did you hear what he said? Guy's crazy, all of that. 
all of a sudden there begins to be this, this, this swelling sound of joy and cheer and laughter and tears. And what's going on? What's going on? What's happened? Yes. Yes, you scorner. As I told you, she's not dead. This is what God does. He saves us. Oh, how he saves us. And he charged them that they should tell no man what was done. I don't think this is Jesus trying to stop people from knowing. I mean, how, how could that work? They already knew she was dead. Now she's alive. You can't hide that. I think this is simply a word to these parents. The Lord's saying, look, you don't have to go around. You don't owe me anything. You don't have to go around telling everyone what I did. I'm not looking for that. You just, you just enjoy the moment. Just enjoy what I've done. Yes, it's the master's voice that stills the storm. It's the master's voice that casts out the devil. It's the master's voice that puts an end to disease. It's the master's voice that delivers from death. And the question is, have you heard it? Have you heard the master's voice? Have you heard in your own personal experience, made arise? Are you converted? Are you a disciple of Christ? Are you a follower of the Lamb? Are you someone living life with a daily sense of indebtedness because you were, just like we read in John 9, you were once blind, now you see. And with all the threat of men, nothing's going to take that away from you. This is, this is what the Lord does. It's his voice. And I read to you, just as we close, this, this, this is the voice you need to hear. It's the voice of the shepherd. We've been, we've been singing about it tonight. It's the voice of the shepherd that you need to listen for and respond to. Because he says himself, when he putteth forth his own sheep, he goeth before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. And a stranger will they not follow, but will flee from him, for they know not the voice of strangers. Are you listening to the voice of strangers? People leading you away from Christ? It's time you listen to the shepherd. He is the good shepherd. He knows his sheep. He calls them to himself. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. The Master. May the Lord help us to hear it. Christian, hear, hear the shepherd. Always stay in the shadow of the shepherd. Get his counsel. Believe his word. Fear not. And for those of you without Christ, do you hear it tonight? Let's bow together in prayer. Let's all of us pray. give one final word of encouragement to you. If you're not aware that your sins are forgiven, if there is any uncertainty in your mind at all, seek the Lord tonight. You have all the warrant you need in the world to believe Jesus Christ tonight. To every excuse to every hesitation, 
simply says, if you come to me, I will never cast you out. Lord, help us all to come to thee. Help us all to hear thy voice. Give to every Christian ears that hear well and show us thy works and counsel our hearts. To those here tonight without Christ, we plead mercy upon them. God, only thou can save. We plead with thee. If there be even one, just one, one that is lost, one that is perishing, we pray that thou wilt have mercy on them. Draw them this very night. Receive then our thanks to thee for this day, the restorative blessing of the Lord's day. We pray that we may carry the sustenance of thy word in our hearts through this week. Thou wilt help us to live always with an eye to thy glory and praise. Bless in all thy people and take us all to our homes in safety. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all thy people now and evermore. Amen.